Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. My name is Joan Bartlett and I'll be here for two hours until 6pm this evening. Today, Mugabe, dead at 95, the former Prime Minister and President of Zimbabwe, Peter Murphy from the Zimbabwe Information Centre, will be reflecting on his life. Political commentary by writer Joan Coxedge, and the focus on West Papua, the activism by local people continues, as do the repression by Indonesia. We'll be speaking to Ronnie Karini. In the lead up to the school strike on the 20th September, writer Ian McIntyre, who you heard in the previous program, reflects on 80 years of action by Australian school students. But first, let's hear it for Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jan, listener, when the world lost that great supporter of trained killing, other people trained killing and running the risk of being trained killed, great supporter of sending the cream of US, of the UN, of the US, of the world youth, brave young men and women in uniform, life of the party, love their families and dear little children, trained killers, great supporter John Belt on the bad guys, sacked by big supremo Donald Trample the poor, or lodging his resignation with Donald anyway, whatever, the doomsday clock immediately went back 20 minutes. Well, maybe not, but there would have been tears in the boardrooms of the great merchants of death. Sure, sure, they're flogging trillions of dollars of train killer stuff, but they have to keep using it so they can replenish it. Thus, they're mourning for poor John's demise. As some consolation, let's give him the week that was Warmonger of the Year Award. Hopefully, that will lift the new dull-bludger spirits, and the merchants of death would have been encouraged as the impact on world peace through war is immediately apparent as evil Iran took advantage of John's absence to attack poor, innocent, loves, liberty, freedom and democracy Saudi oil structures. And we know evil Iran is the perpetrator because the US of Secretary for World State Mike Pompeo or else said it is. Dismissing claims by the Hutu, whom poor innocent Saudi bombs every day and night, that they launched the attack. There's no proof they did it. Mike wanted proof. Uh, there's no doubt evil Iran is the evil perpetrator. And you do have proof. We don't need proof. We know. And we're concocting, uh, oh, no, no, we're, uh, we're developing, uh, no, no, working on the proof right now. Conspiracy theorists might suggest, look at who benefits from all this, but we won't go there. We're told the inferno wiped out about 5% of the world's oil supplies, as the experts who know about these things predicted a surge in petrol prices for the punters behind the wheel. And I thought, and I'm sure we all thought, listener, that must mean prices will rise by 5%. But... No. Day one, and oil prices soared by 20%. And who knows what that will mean at the pump when the impact hits, but I suspect it may well exceed 5%, showing how little we know about how these things work. 
or conversely, how we know all about it. Notice Donald was upset the Taliban killed a great US ob soldier. Dear me, the Taliban invaded the US ob Donald. No, our great train killer was in Afghanistan to liberate the Taliban by killing them. Oh dear, and they killed him. Evil, evil, terrible, greatest ever, ever evil. But the really interesting thing was that Donald said the great American came from Puerto Rico, that US of satellite whose people Donald wants to keep out of the place, not that Donald's ever inconsistent. Terror was also commemorated on the 11th of the 9th, or as our great friend the US of says, 9-11, one of the horrific acts of, of terror, killing and torturing thousands as the US of overthrew the elected Chilean Big Supremo on 9-11-1973 and established the reign of terror of General Pinch of Shit. A couple of years before the same forces, our close, close, warm friend, connived to overthrow our very own true blue Aussie big supremo. Bringing us to this business back here, this US of phobic fear, with attacks on MPs from across the very narrow political spectrum for their contacts with the US of Capitalist Party, which controls every aspect of US of life. Scholarships to the big universities, meetings with people close to the US of government, suspected close relationships with the good old CIA, that sort of thing, leading to questions over the influence which the US of has over the true blue Aussie economy. Although they all concede we can attack the US of and the influence of its dominant capitalist party without affecting our relationship and particularly our beneficial trading relationship. Let's hope the hysteria doesn't make true blue Aussies of US of background feel uncomfortable. Why they even want to stop them buying our agricultural land of, of which they own so much. As the private health profits industry argues we'd all be a lot healthier if it could get its hands on more and more of the public purse, it seems Booper has made a blooper and got sprung. More than half, indeed 60% of its aged care facilities worthy of being closed down due to a bit lacking in the care department. Bet there's no problems in the collect the money department. And then Booper Blooper said it had nothing to do with it. Some mysterious agent created the problem, but it would take steps to rectify the problem. How good of it, which they all say when they get sprung. Although, which some might say they could avoid by not creating the problem in the first place. Doing that for which they are handsomely paid. And then they said the vast majority of Booper Blooper facilities were well run. And I thought, which bit of less than half, indeed 40%, is the vast majority. I don't claim to be a mathematical genius, but, 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 I'll move on. We can't even work out how 5% is 20%. On Health, a new report from King's College London says red wine is not only beneficial for the heart, but is also good for the gut. So many of us should have the healthiest hearts and guts in the world. It does say the occasional glass. But then that's okay, because I never miss an occasion to have one or, or two. Speaking of London, the totally unnecessary headline of the week last weekend's True Blue Capitalist Review has Boris botched Brexit. Only Boris would answer no. 
uh, Owen, possibly Donald, his biggest supporter, in fact, maybe his only, until he, Boris, does something or even nothing to upset Donald, and Donald tweets that he didn't tweet all the eulogies he tweeted about Boris. Fake news. Uh, but here's what you tweeted. Fake news. Biggest fake news ever. Terrible. The latest corruption inquiry into the, surprise, surprise, New South Wales Socialist Party reckons that the recently retired arising out of Secretary Kayla Manane got her corruption scandals mixed up when she gave evidence, was talking about a different scandal to council assisting. And we can sympathise with her because when it comes to the New South Wales Socialist Party, it'd be so easy to get your scandals mixed up. Getting lands mixed up in the Zion election campaign, and what a choice. Big Supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, prepared for the next round of USR-sponsored peace initiatives by promising to expand Zion into the land the Palestinian non-state non-people fled when Zion took over their land. Although annexing the land is just recognising the fate accompli of years of good, loyal Zion citizens annexing it anyway. Um, how will this assist the two-state solution, Benjamin? It will allow Zion to state that the Palestinian non-state, non-people terrorists must pay for their terrorism by remaining stateless. There is nothing more terrifying for a brave young man or woman cream of Zion youth trained killer than to have a stone thrown at her or him. Uh, but where can the non-state, non-people live? outside the West Bank Zion borders, where they will become a threat to our security, so we will have to annex those lands they don't own and which we will own to prevent more terrorism. Terrorism on poor, caring employers, this emerging retail and fast food workers' union has a lot to answer for. The fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it con mission, threw out a hungry for profits jack agreement claiming workers were not consulted properly. The real union, the shopping the workers union, accused the parvenu retail and fast food lot of requiring, quote, a detailed and confusing explanation of the terms of an agreement to young and inexperienced workers. Employees will switch off. A sentiment supported by our old mate, True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group Supremo, Innes will cost the workers. The retail and fast food approach highlights that there are far too many technical hurdles in, this, in the agreement-making process that need to be addressed through legislative changes, Innes mused wisely. Serious technical hurdles like having to consult the workers. What's wrong with the long-term, comfy little arrangements between the caring employers and the shopping the workers' union? This bloody interfering new union wanting the workers to know what's going on, or not going in their pay packets. It's none of their business. Just like taking up issues like climate change is none of big business's business, which they must restrict to the important things in life like profits and their shareholders. This junior minister assisting the big supremo Ben Mort on the planet lectured the corporate sector. You don't see the government wasting time on irrelevant issues like the end of the world, 
Ben was extremely convincing. But true to form, the Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Anthony all being Uzi, attacked the government for having no policy on climate change. Uh, and what's your policy, Anthony? Uh, 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 sorry? Finally, back to the beginning, our distress at the demise of our favourite US of warmonger John Bolt on the bad guys. A final tribute, and let's hope it's the last we ever hear of him. There was an aggressive moustache which believed in the bomb and the lash. The relief for the poor is to send them to war. Death for them, for us, plenty of cash. Good afternoon. Now, Kevin, was that Anthony? Or was that a crow? It's uh, something you know I'd like to find out from you pretty soon. That was Mr. Kevin Healy, and that was his week that was. And he does some, another stint on Wednesday morning between 9 and 10 for City Limits. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. Robert Mugabe, former Prime Minister and later President of Zimbabwe, is dead, having lived to the age of 95. He dominated Zimbabwe politics for nearly four decades and died a corrupt tyrant who cost his country dearly. His funeral last week took place in a nearly empty stadium. A combination of the good, the bad and the ugly. Peter Murphy, a member of the Zimbabwe Information Centre in Sydney, is on the line to talk about his life and legacy. As I said, Peter, the good, the bad and the ugly, also the Australian connection, were there some good? I think... The good will, in relation to Robert Mugabe, will be the leadership of the ZANU in the late 1970s, the negotiations at Lancaster House for an election and uh, an independent Zimbabwe. The initial policy uh, direction he took to reconcile with the white minority, to work with them in the construction of a new country where... Initially, the emphasis was on education and health and agriculture. In my mind, that's even putting a gloss on that time, but I I do think that uh, history will really record that part in terms of Mugabe. But even in the period of the late 70s, Mugabe was uh, already a, a tyrannical player within the liberation struggle. We could even say starting in 1975 with the assassination of Herbert Chitepo, who was the leader of ZANU. He was uh, killed by a car bomb uh, at his house in Lusaka in Zambia. And uh, it's all murky, but um, 
there's a strong line of opinion that uh, Robert Mugabe played a role in that. That would enable him to become the leader of ZANU, and it did. There was also debates going on among the members of the ZANLA, the, the fight at the army of ZANU. A large number of uh, those people who were considered dissidents were executed in the, in the camps. Sekai Holland, who we've talked about on this program a bit, she was sentenced to death and managed to... She survived by escaping from the camp. There's actually many voices able to attest to these things which go back to the... the it's hard to get the right adjectives to, for Mugabe, but it was a sort of devious, tricky, controlling approach he had to political power. So he was, he, it was a pattern all through his career, in fact, to play off one group against another to maintain himself at the top. Do we need to look at colonialism to see if he was just following a pattern? Yes, I think that's easy to, it's easy actually to see the continuity. The British colonial regime in that part of Africa, you know, was one of, uh, you know, violence and uh, a form of absolute rule. The uh, African population was corralled into reservations and uh, stripped of their land and the violence around the uh, 1890s uh, was, was particularly harsh. Ian Smith, Unilateral Declaration of Independence in 1965, was a, a sort of a reassertion of that pathway, whereas, say, the British government had decided that it would withdraw from colonialism in Africa and grant independence to its former colonies. To circumvent that, a white minority in what was then called Southern Rhodesia declared independence from Britain unilaterally and imposed its rule. So it was, again, a sort of absolute rule of a minority using force. ZAPU and ZANU, different ways, launched protest movements plus armed campaigns at that time for independence based on one person, one vote. That would be equality. I think uh, Mugabe, I don't understand how he came to be like he became, but uh, he was able to see that... Uh, if, if you can put yourself in his shoes or even in Joshua and Como's shoes, you could say, well, history is on our side. We can say we're going to represent the majority of the people. You know, it's me or someone close to me is going to become a powerful person like the former governor, like Ian Smith. It'll be me. You can sort of see the equation now. I will be rich. So it was, uh, you know, really venal a sort of motivation in the end, I think. I know from other friends, like a, an Australian woman who married a um, Sanu exile in Kenya um, when they went back to Zimbabwe in 1980. Her husband was demanding his BMW and <laughs> the whole cohort that he was part of were asking, for, you know, insisting that they would get a BMW. From our point of view in Australia, you know, people showing solidarity with the liberation movement. This was quite a shocking <laughs> bit of news to get. We had been warned by Sekai Holland that Robert Mugabe was going to be a bad leader and we shouldn't expect it all to be rosy. Of course, she went back anyway to take a risk and she went back knowing that you know that he had had her sentenced to death before and she was quite willing to take the risk and, and do something for her country and there were obviously thousands and maybe tens of thousands like her too. 
Mugabe, I think, even at his best, was actually uh, into plunder. Very, very soon after the election win and the formation of the new government, he did launch a massacre of his political, uh, what he perceived as a political threat, that Joshua and Como and uh, Zapu were strong enough to represent an alternative to him and ZANU. He wasn't going to deal with that in a normal political way. He sent in the army and just uh, massacred whole communities. In the end, I think that you could say the ZAPU people resisted one way or the other or refused to surrender for years. But by about 1987, Joshua and Como realised that the cost was so high that it was better for him to concede. So ZANU PF was reformed as not as an election coalition for 1980, but as a as a single political party um, in 1988-89. You had this sort of brief period of the one-party state idea just at the sort of end of the Soviet Union, with the collapse of the Eastern Bloc and the and the Soviet Union. Robert Mugabe then switched around to uh, let's have uh, the IMF come in, let's have a structural adjustment program, let's have the free market. He went with Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, the sort of uh, last gasp of Gorbachev and, and the beginnings of Boris Yeltsin. You know, it was uh, initially, uh, like in many parts of the world, there was lots of money and uh, lots of uh, consumer goods available but it was uh, it was all pretty well on credit and uh, it sort of collapsed within a few years into a, you know, a very difficult economic crash, 1994, 1995 especially. And uh, the whole dynamic changed because the trade union movement led by Morgan Chungarai at that time did launch big strikes. And when the strikes uh, were repressed and didn't achieve much, they then started thinking that they needed a political strategy as well as this sort of industrial one. And they all pretty well resigned from ZANU, which was a big organisation. And um, by 1999, they created the Movement for Democratic Change and a call for a new constitution. A sort of pretty all-encompassing all alternative program was developed. Sekai Holland was one of the foundation players in that through her based in the Rural Women's Organisation. It was called the Association of Women's Clubs. The, you know, the student movement was in it. The trade union movement was in it. And you know, it was well-founded, I, I suppose I'm trying to say. The constitutional debate was going on with Mugabe then deciding it was so strong he would take the initiative and he put forward his own new constitution to head off the more democratic initiatives from below. The referendum on that was held in the first week of February 2000, and he lost it. And I think that was his first sort of uh, open electoral defeat. He immediately launched the seizure of the uh, remaining commercial uh, white commercial farms. He did, he did that because he thought, first of all, that the white commercial farmers were supporting the movement for democratic change and that uh, their employees, which was like of half a million people, were also voting that way. So he destroyed the, this whole economic sector, the most important economic sector in the country, to destroy the vote. Those uh, agricultural workers were dispersed and lots of them had to go back to other countries that they had 
their parents might have come from in Mozambique or Botswana or somewhere else. It was it was a sort of effort to destroy uh, a political opposition, but it was incredibly destructive. You, know, you could say it succeeded, but it, it, success is not the right word for that type of event. How many of the white communities stayed? You know, by the time we're talking about now of uh, uh, the year 2000, there were only 40,000 white people in a country of about 12 million. You know, so in, in political terms, they were negligible as a, a vote. In economic terms, they were important because the agricultural sector was important uh, export uh, earner and it fed, it fed the country as well, of course. I can't be sure now about the numbers back in 1980, but I think that you know, it, was, it wasn't you know, a huge thing that there might have been 200,000 white people in Zimbabwe at that time and, and a lot left in 1980 and Mugabe reached out to the rest to stay. I, I would say he even sort of established a good uh, rapport with Ian Smith you know, in the 80s and 90s. But the number getting down to 40,000 by 2000 shows you, you know, that it was an important group of people who were committed to staying in the country. But that is, they were bought, mostly born there. They saw their future and their families' futures there. They uh, were Zimbabwe citizens. It was horrible when, when he decided to attack them. And, of course, there were plenty of people murdered and uh, many more injured. A lot of destruction of property happened. What's the Australian connection between Zimbabwe's opposition and the Zimbabwe government in the early years? You know, it was uh, interesting here because we had the bigger anti-apartheid movement focused on South Africa and, and then to some extent on, on Zimbabwe and Namibia. Zimbabwe, you know, got its independence relatively early in 1980 compared to 1990s for, for the other two. You know, most of the energy, I'd say, was focused on South Africa. But uh, really going back into the 19th century and the, the sort of uh, dynamics of the British Empire, there had always been some exchange of people between Rhodesia, uh, South Africa, etc., and Australia. I'd say by the 19th, including in the mining industry, because the gold rushes and so on in uh, Australia coincided or parallel with what was going on in South Africa and Rhodesia was initially invaded by uh, white people looking for gold and diamonds and that's the Cecil Rhodes thing but they didn't find much even though diamonds did turn up in the 21st century uh, in a big way they found really rich agricultural land. In the uh, 1950s I think you could say that the the Social interactions were more intense in farming, mining. To some extent, the, you know, the royal families visited both places and people visited. And then uh, in the time of the struggle, starting in the 60s, there was a you know, polarisation. So, yes, the anti-apartheid people and more broadly the anti-colonial sentiment in Australia was for the British to get out of its colonies and to give independence. Uh, when the violence started, uh, with the UDI especially, there was a polarisation. So there was a, a block of people in Australia who had lived in, in Rhodesia and they set up uh, you know, an association, or they had one, which campaigned to support Smith. 
the uh, Menzies government and the Holt and Gorton and so on, they tolerated a sort of semi-official uh, embassy of uh, Smith's regime in Australia. And uh, it had an office in North Sydney, I think. The pro-independence uh, movement had to struggle against that. When the Whitlam government got elected, it was really you know, a complete shift in attitude at the government level. People from Zimbabwe were able to visit, especially Herbert Chitepo did come to Australia in 1974 and convinced, I think, the Whitlam government people that their project should be supported. Whitlam was sufficiently independent from the British and the Americans to say, yeah, we, we will play a role, and he, like provided clothing, boots, medicine, and so on for the armed struggle. No weapons or anything, but non-lethal aid, and started giving political support, of course, then for the process to end the war and hand over uh, sovereignty. Whitlam only lasted the three years, so uh, things went back a bit with Fraser. But Fraser himself was a different character, he had uh, always been uh, fairly vocal against racism uh, in, in relation to the opportunity that came up in 1979. So he's the Prime Minister. Talks are underway under the auspices of the Commonwealth in, in London. Fraser went to the talks. Thatcher was the other on the other side, the British side. There was some controversy because Fraser, in the way it was presented in our media, and I was fighting with Margaret Thatcher uh, about being realistic enough to say that ZANU was likely to win the election and that uh, Australia wanted to, you know, the Commonwealth to support uh, a ZANU government and in, in be constructive, you know, not try to create more trouble and difficulty for the people of Zimbabwe. He, in a way, I think Fraser might have been recruited as an ally by some other people in the British in a foreign office in this same attitude, but he did play a role which was notable. So Australia had sort of elevated its its uh, profile in terms of the future of this part of Africa. Then in 83, so not long after, we got the Hawke government elected, which you know renewed or picked up the mantle from Whitlam, especially on the broad anti-apartheid movement. And... Uh, there was a lot of support coming consistently from Australia for e economic development in Zimbabwe and to strengthen Zimbabwe as one of the frontline states in the confrontation with apartheid. So I think a lot of a lot of really bad things that Mugabe was doing, especially in the repression of Zapu, were just ignored for the sake of the broader united front against uh, South Africa's apartheid regime. So you can see that in the 1980s, Australia deepened its engagement in a, in a complicated way with uh, a Zimbabwe led by Robert Mugabe. In the 1990s, especially the late 90s, this all fell apart. Uh, the British were the sort of focus of you know, Mugabe's anger, Tony Blair in particular, because Blair objected to the uh, lack of progress uh, with land reform and the abuse of the, the corruption of the funds coming from Britain to assist with certain processes to do with land. With John Howard by 1997, he started in March 96, 
were naturally going to be supportive of that British attitude. You can say, you know, knowing we know John Howard and he was a racist. Uh, he's a racist. He um, was very reluctant, I think, to recognise the, the change in, in South Africa. He, he eventually was persuaded on that one. And with Zimbabwe, I think it was relatively easy for him to really object to Robert Mugabe, but in another way it was very difficult because he had this policy against you know, state intervention in human rights matters in any, anywhere, including in Australia. What was really going on in, in Zimbabwe was you know, a gross and blatant abuse of uh, basic rights of people. In 2002, after an election which was clearly stolen, that is, MDC won uh, an election, but didn't, the votes were counted the other way. Using uh, Commonwealth Observer teams on which uh, Kevin Rudd and Julie Bishop had participated, John Howard objected to Zimbabwe's uh, outcome at a Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Nigeria. Seeing it coming, um, Mugabe uh, withdrew, resigned Zimbabwe from the Commonwealth at that time. John Howard was the one who played the most prominent role globally, you know, in the international dynamic around this time. A few years later, there was, a, in 2005, there was a, another kind of uh, sector outrage in Zimbabwe because, again, of the election dynamics. Mugabe uh, decided that the urban vote of the urban poor was um, for MDC and uh, he was going to punish them and try to smash the vote. So there was this uh, program called Murambachina, which is a, a really ugly word in this context because it really means that these people that he targeted were shit. They should be cleaned up, as in shit should be cleaned up. It was a sort of huge demolition of uh, what the government declared were illegal housing and you know vendors and stalls and markets in urban areas in Zimbabwe, and about 700,000 people were displaced. You know, it's made homeless. And some of them are still living, you know, in little shanties off in, in the bush, even today. Around that time, Alexander Downer, under a lot of pressure from us, and we, we actually had a United Nations special report which said this was an abuse of human rights, this was illegal in international law, so quite a lot of the children of uh, Mugabe and his cronies were here in Australia having a great time, allegedly as students, but they were driving their Porsches and um, throwing wild parties and generally, you know, you know, being an embarrassment to Zimbabwe where there was a huge poverty and social crisis. Using the smart sanctions which had been applied to Mugabe and these other cronies, which don't allow tra financial transactions for us in Australia, for these individuals. Alexander Downer expelled all these kids and they all, one plane load of them, flying back into Harare by accident on the same flight that Sekai Holland and her husband Jim were on. And so there was this very funny uh, situation at the airport where the parents were all there to meet their kids and there was Jim and Sekai who they blamed for them getting kicked out. And, uh, you know, there was, um, again, I think uh, Australia you know, ironically with Alexander Downer to um, playing this role. They were the most prominent government to take some kind of action to to rebuff, you know, what Mugabe had done with uh, Murambachvina. 
you can see that you know Australia has played a role, and then we get Kevin Rudd elected and Julia Gillard as Prime Minister, and we're coming up to the elections of 2013, and. Uh, this all went really wrong, but uh, the Australian government officially invited uh, Morgan Chungarai, you know, on a visit to Australia, and the Prime Minister put on a, a lunch. There was a serious discussions between NDC and, and our government about how to go forward, hopefully, after an election, and uh, it didn't work out. The election was massively rigged, and uh, the NDC had no real strategy to deal with that and it was the end of this sort of uh, joint government where Morgan Chungarai had been a Prime Minister and some relief had come to the people in economic terms so uh, again you can see that the, the last Labor government played a pretty high profile role trying hard to assist the people of Zimbabwe and um, we then get the Abbott period up till now a continuing deterioration of the situation which you know instead of it being like a conflict with the opposition and and the government it was a conflict inside the government where Grace Mugabe came forward I, I can't quite remember the year but I think uh, Solomon Majuru who was a really important ZANU figure from the Liberation War and a key economic player was assassinated I think that happened in 2012, so it's a little just at, just at the end of the Labor government period here. And uh, his uh, wife was already a vice president of ZANU. So Grace Mugabe organised for a movement, an, an incredible um, pogrom virtually against Joyce Majuru. And in the end, she was uh, forced to, she was kicked out of her vice presidency. Really, she was lucky to be alive. And Within a couple of years after that, Emerson Manangagwa became the target of Grace Mugabe. Manangagwa got poisoned and was lucky to survive that. And in, in the end, Grace Mugabe organised for uh, him to be sacked as well. So he, that was in uh, 2017, not long ago, and uh, he had to flee the country. But that's, that's when the military decided that if Grace Mugabe was going to be the successor to Robert Mugabe that they would take action. So the Grace Mugabe relationship in the end was what blew it for Robert Mugabe. The internal fighting that's gone on in ZANU PF since the end of 2017 is, is very significant. I think Australia has, I guess, had to play a, a sort of step back, step back in these years, these last four years or so, First, because the MDC had been badly defeated in 2013 and then disintegrated into about six different parts. So there was really no viable opposition to the government. And then the internal turmoil was just a downward spiral for the whole country, the internal turmoil inside ZANU-PF. And then at the same time, the Abbott government, followed by Turnbull and by Morrison, has continuously cut the international aid program and redefined Australia's priorities savagely so that Africa, except for South Africa and to a little extent Zimbabwe, the rest of Africa is no longer a priority for Australian foreign policy and the amount of uh, funds which 
could be provided to support broadly the democratic alternatives in Zimbabwe is greatly diminished. It's not zero, but you know it's greatly diminished. So Australia has really sort of gone back into the second row, I suppose, of the diplomatic effort on Zimbabwe up till now, but it's got an abiding interest. And as you can see, there's a lot of people in our foreign affairs establishment and in other parts, especially the mining industry and agriculture and even in tourism and cultural parts of society who are pretty well connected to uh, Zimbabwe and want to play a role, if possible, in a, in a better future. So I think that there's a, a real reservoir of energy from Australia. And in our little humble way, the ZIC is a, a sort of political expression of this from the community level. We, we can say that the residual anti-apartheid networks, the trade union movement as a whole, a lot of the churches are very much wanting to help uh, in Zimbabwe and feel we've got a responsibility given uh, the role, the different roles uh, different groups of Australians and governments have played for now 50, 60, 70 years. And thanks for that from Peter Murphy from the Zimbabwe Information Centre. The life and times of Robert Mugabe, a lot of people suffered, black and white, under his rule. I don't know whether you're aware or not, I'm no, lots of people are that there are five ways you can listen to 3CR. You could be listening on your old analogue radio, 8.55 a.m. Most people now have got a digital radio or receiver, and it's 3CR. Live streaming means that you can listen while this program or any other program is live, and you can do it on your computer by 3cr.org.au stroke streaming. And the other two ways are the first one is audio on demand, which means that any program such as this, you can listen to it for up to one week. And after that one week is up, you can listen to the next week. So that's 3cr.org.au slash the name of the program that you want. And then the last one is the podcast, where you can have the programs sent to your computer and you can listen to them at your leisure and that again is 3cr.org.au, your program page slash podcast. So lots of ways that you can hear 3CR. You don't have to be sitting right where you are at the moment if you're listening on a radio. You can be wandering around or you can be listening at your leisure. This is 3cr.org.au and you're listening to Tuesday Home Time. <laughs> Six years I've been in prison. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. My eyes.
But I, also, while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going, you know. Like, it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 Next on Tuesday Home Time, writer and activist Joan Coxedge. I've just returned from a few weeks visiting a branch of my family who live in Thailand, mainly to take part in my grandson's 10th birthday. They live on seven acres, halfway between a town called Udon Thani, which is Thailand's third largest, which is situated in the far northeast of the country, and the Mekong, the other side of which is Laos. Thankfully, I managed to dodge the cobras and giant spiders, but despite smothering myself in rid, still got bitten by mozzies, none of them infected by either dengue or malaria, thank the good Lord. Corruption in Thailand is in your face, a toss-up between who's the worst, the army or the police, whereas just about everywhere else, especially here, it's equally as bad, if not worse, involving presidents and prime ministers from top down and affecting every facet of our lives, but where most of it is kept hidden from public view. Media reporting is a classic case of what they fail to report, preferring lies, manipulation of news and blatant hypocrisy, keeping the populace generally uninformed and misinformed. Today I want to talk about Hong Kong, which is a classic case of the Western media providing only one side of the story. A bit of history wouldn't hurt, which goes back a long way. Hong Kong has been part of China since the Qin Dynasty in about 220 BC when it was a source of salt and pearls, eventually morphing into an international trading centre. Trade between China and European colonial powers really kicked off with the advent of the ruthless East India Tea Company that started operating in 1711. The Brits refused to pay for the tea in silver and began smuggling in opium as a means of exchange, contravening Chinese laws. By 1787, the company was illegally sending 4,000 chests of opium to China every year, each chest weighing 77 kilos. The great Qing dynasty tried to ban opium after it badly affected millions of Chinese and caused massive corruption and an addiction. In 1820, China's economy had been the largest in the world for many centuries until the Opium Wars. Furthermore, China was a net exporter and had large trade surpluses with most Western countries. But within a decade after the end of the two wars, China's share of global GDP had fallen by half and its sovereignty was seriously compromised. In 1841, a defeated China was forced to cede Hong Kong Island to the British as part of the Treaty of Nanjing. It was also forced to lease the adjacent Kowloon Peninsula in 1860 to the British in perpetuity and the new territories in 1898 for 99 years, areas that make up present-day Hong Kong. 
Hong Kong became a crown colony of the British Empire and was occupied by the Japanese during World War II. After the war, Hong Kong reverted back to the British and became a significant trading and financial hub, useful to both sides both economically and diplomatically during the Cold War and as a consequence attracted waves of immigrants profoundly affecting its identity. But Britain was forced to transfer sovereignty back to China when the lease expired in 1997. Britain and China negotiated a transition period called the Sino-British Joint Declaration, designating Hong Kong as a special administrative region. As part of an earlier agreement, China had agreed to extend semi-autonomy to Hong Kong, including its economic and trade policies, as well as judicial, executive and legislative powers for 50 years, up until 2047. This is the genesis of the one country, two systems rule at the heart of today's conflict, a law that has governed Hong Kong, outlining the rights and freedoms of its residents, structure of government and its electoral system. Many of its principles are a direct carryover from the British colonial system. And so in many fundamental ways, China and Hong Kong have been on two distinct and intersecting paths of development. Born out of feudalism, the People's Republic of China did not inherit a developed bourgeois democracy. A modern socialist economy and governing model had to be and is still being built, a process that is virtually unprecedented in modern history. Contradictions and clashes were bound to occur. It is now 22 years since the British left Hong Kong, almost halfway through the planned 50-year life of the one country, two systems rule when the parties agreed to leave the capitalist system in place for 50 years. The agreement also stipulated that all interventions and colonial claims would end with full sovereignty returning to China. The riots we are seeing today are, by definition, completely ignoring the 1997 handover treaty. And as for the extradition bill that has now been withdrawn, most countries have them, including our own. Its absence in Hong Kong was a legacy of British colonialism and China's isolation since 1949. Calling for secession or independence from China would be like asking Manhattan to secede from the United States. Can you imagine Washington agreeing to that? Having experienced the humiliation of colonial oppression, China will never again permit any dismemberment of its territory, nor will it allow the current social upheaval to drive a wedge in its mainland. And times have changed. In 1997, Hong Kong's domestic product was 27% of China's GDP, whereas today the proportion has shrunk to a mere 3% and declining. Hong Kong is notorious for its lax banking laws that allow illegal financial transactions, money laundering, shonky investments in the billions to be carried out with any, any oversight whatsoever. The world's largest banks are now in mainland China. Shenzhen and other major Chinese cities have surpassed Hong Kong as the financial and manufacturing centres and have become a major threat to the US corporate world, even though Hong Kong itself still remains an essential, even if somewhat less important, source of foreign capital. 
The West has failed to comprehend or publicize the fact that China and some other Western nations, along with Russia, India and Pakistan, have already detached from or are in the process of detaching from the dollar economy. They are members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, SCO, comprising about half of the world's population and controlling about one-third of the global economic output. Therefore, SCO members no longer depend on Western financial markets and monetary manipulations. Which brings us to today. Can you imagine the official reaction if protesters smashed up Heathrow, JFK or Melbourne airports and closed down international flights? Authorities would have rounded them up, beaten them up and jailed them or worse. The scenes of vandalism and insurrection at Hong Kong's airport were staggering. And on the uh, MTR, the Public Mass Transit Railway, black-clad youths ripped rubbish bins off walls and threw them onto the train tracks, smashed service centres, vandalised subway entry gates and attacked passengers who criticised their behaviour. It was clearly part of a well-planned, coordinated sabotage campaign to disrupt the city's entire service used by millions every day. Its legislative building was also severely damaged by marauding gangs who defaced the Chinese national flag and then held up the Union Jack, the flag of their former colonial masters, along with the US flag while singing the star-spangled banner through loudspeakers. Is it their desire to resurrect its colonial past when Hong Kong never held elections or had a local government but was ruled directly from London and where prisoners were confined and executed not very far from the current protests during British rule? A large cohort of demonstrators actually delivered a petition to the US consulate demanding help while others dressed in ninja outfits with metal bars in their hands and black scarves covering their faces, holding up posters asking President Trump to please liberate Hong Kong. Right-wing Trump as a liberator? Tell that to the Cubans and Latin Americans. Some bystanders asked, liberate from who? And got beaten up like a reporter from China's Global Times who was lynched by an angry mob on suspicion he was an undercover cop and which then attacked paramedics as they entered the airport to rescue him. Fighting for democracy? My foot. Local citizens are mainly hostile to the protests but are too scared to confront the mainly young, covered up and highly organised armed gangs who gather and move around in hordes, mostly refusing to speak and with their backpacks churning out the US national anthem. It's certainly no coincidence that the mayhem has come at a time when the Trump administration is waging a trade war with China, as Washington seems to be gradually moving its focus from Russia as enemy number one to China as the new enemy number one. We can expect to see more xenophobia and less Russiaphobia, more meddling and interference anything to cause maximum friction and dissent. And the blatant hypocrisy of the United States and Britain, so-called concern for the protesters, is mind-blowing. A few years back, when US citizens launched an Occupy Wall Street protest against exploitation, the peaceful demonstrators were beaten up with clubs and batons, and many hundreds of them were thrown into the back 
of armoured vehicles. If you compare police actions in Hong Kong with Paris and the United States, they've been surprisingly restrained. The massive Hong Kong protests have also been portrayed as leaderless, but many are asking who is actually directing them. And it turns out that some of the key figures behind the unrest have long-standing ties with a dodgy global outfit called the Beacon of Democracy, based in Washington, D.C. One of the men is a Hong Kong tycoon, Jimmy Lay, whose company owns one of the most read local papers, a tabloid called the Apple Daily. On July the 8th, Mr. Jimmy Lay met U.S. Vice President Mike Pence at the White House and is openly criticised, even by his own people, as a conspirator behind the violence of the Hong Kong riots. Another is politician and barrister Martin Lee, the founding chairman of the local Democratic Party. Christian Whiton, a former senior advisor in the Trump and Bush administrations, met both Lai and Lee and said, a causing this crisis for the Chinese government is good for the national interests of the United States. Other prominent American diplomats have been photographed holding discussions with both men. Student protester leader Joshua Wong has been flying around the world and hobnobbing with the rich and powerful, including meeting far-right US congressman, coup plotter against Venezuela, Marco Rubio, along with Rayed El Salaire, head of the notorious White Helmets, a Western propaganda mob with close links to terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and Al-Nusra that was founded in 2013 by James Lee Mazurier, a British ex-mercenary and intelligence agent. Wong was also caught meeting with senior US official Julie Edar at the US consulate in Hong Kong. What, I ask, would a supposedly organic grassroots movement leader in China have in common with a belligerent Syrian war outfit? On the surface, nothing. But under the surface, they're both propaganda and destabilization tools of Western foreign meddling. The evidence is overwhelming that this Western hero, Joshua Wong, has been trained and funded by the US State Department and has been elevated as a main player in the current protest movement, an on-the-ground boy for the aforementioned local media tycoon, Jimmy Lay. A US news website has confirmed that some of the groups involved in recent rioting had received significant funding from the National Endowment for Democracy, NED, a mini-CIA outfit that has nothing whatever to do with democracy, but everything to do with overthrowing elected governments. It's been going on for quite a long time. According to an admission by Victoria Newland, US Deputy Secretary of State, her department poured millions of dollars into creating unrest in Hong Kong three years before the official handover and continues to finance regime-changing activities to the tune of $5 billion via NED. NED was hatched by Henry Kissinger and President Reagan in 1982 to finance, train and equip overseas groups to support US policies. In 1991, the Washington Post quoted a NED founder, Alan Weinstein, as saying, a lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA. It certainly doesn't hide its light under a bushel. In 2017, NED proclaimed on its website, 
In 2017, the endowment prioritised countries in Asia where NED was positioned to have the greatest impact. Building upon NED's strategy from previous years, programs continue to be concentrated on key issues within each sub-region. And the Voice of America interviewed NED's Vice President for Asia, the Middle East and North Africa in 2014, who said the organisation had been funding Hong Kong for about two decades, with grants totalling many millions of dollars. And further, the three partners in Hong Kong were the US-based Solidarity Centre, the Hong Kong Human Rights Monitor, which had been working there since 1997, and the US National Democratic Institute, which had been given a grant of about half a million dollars with a number of other grants strewn around the region. And doesn't the CIA just love words like freedom and democracy? And we see the results of its largesse everywhere, like in Cuba, where the accounts of dozens of its journalists, along with millions of their followers, were suspended after a blanket Twitter ban without any explanation, just moments before the Cuban president was about to deliver a much-anticipated address to tell the people about his nation's dwindling fuel supplies, as well as measures to combat the illegal, crippling U.S. sanctions. Twitter accused the Cubans of, quote, sowing political dissent, whatever the hell that means. The social media grant offered no evidence to support its bizarre assertion. The Hong Kong debacle must be decided by the ordinary people to resolve by dialogue and peaceful means without any outside political interference, if that's at all possible in today's belligerent and warmongering climate. Good afternoon and good luck. And thanks very much to writer Joan Coxedge. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. I'm speaking once again to West Papua activist Ronnie Kareni. How easy or difficult is it to get information out of West Papua? It is difficult to get information out of West Papua. Basically, if we look in the last 50 years since Indonesia occupied or uh, administered the region, in terms of the number of deaths, it was in early 2000 that the Yale University and Sydney University came up with a report of the statistics or the demography uh, of the indigenous Papuans as well as over time. And they concluded that um, it is a slow motion genocide that goes on in the region. And in 2010, after the national census of Indonesia took place, then one of the academics, Jim Emsley, studied the demography of the indigenous population and concluded 
that based on the the 10-year period, uh, the number of the indigenous population are declining. And he concluded it, they will become minority in their own land. But in terms of that report, it's based on the national statistics. And so that gives a sense of the verified information to get on the ground is very limited and very difficult. And I can give an example of the current situation and the conflict in the Highlands region in Duga. Since December last year, after the shooting and the deaths of the several uh, construction workers and the military response into the situation, which on the report it is now confirmed that at least 5,000 internally displaced persons are in Wamena. That's in a near neighboring uh, district. But no one can verify those who have scattered into other four neighboring regions, which is in Yahukimo, Agats, more down to Merauke, south part of the, the island, West Papua, and then to Timika, and to add those who are, are lost in the take safe refuge in the jungle. And the reports from local government estimates that at least over 40,000 people have deserted the Duga Regency, which make up of 32 districts, are not there now. They are being displaced, and they're internally displaced. But up until now, we, we can't verify that. We can only go with what the local governments and um, human rights defenders and volunteers making those reports. Even the last couple of days, um, it has confirmed that at least 182 people have died since the Nduga crisis. But we don't know the confirmed numbers. But that gives a sense of the difficulty of information coming out. What is the significance of the troubles in the Highland areas? The significance of travel in the Highlands area is for the people, the local, they have been living in the terrains and the mountains and the valleys and they are very much accustomed to their land. And especially when the announcement of the Trans-Papua Highway to build from Sorong, the western end of the island, and then to the highlands region, which is in Paniai, Yahukimo, and then going to go down near to Nduga, and then it will cut back to Timika. So while I'm talking, it is more this, the highlands region I'm talking. And then it will drop down to the north coast, which is in Jayapura, and then there will be one that cross down all the way to the southern part in Merauke. And since that announcement of the Trans-Papua Highway, there were no consultation of, with the local indigenous um, elders and the chief. And because it has been known as the hotspots whereby the confrontation between the, the Papuan liberation movement through the, the military wing, and the Indonesian military in the 60s. So the horrific experience has led to the high people in the highlands doesn't want any development or infrastructure of roads as such, the Trans-Papua Highway. And so they resist that any developments to come into that area because that will be used by the state security forces to continue the exploitation and 
their businesses that is continuing through providing security, but as well as um, illegal logging and other forms of business that uh, the state security has been carried out. And so in terms of the Papuan um, perspective, they push back on any form of development and the significance of any form of those roads and everything, um, it's a pushback because at the end of the day, um, they're not calling for the infrastructure and development, and it's for them it is their right to self-determination. Are you saying that many people will be relocated because of this highway taken off their lands? The highway itself, it's debatable because parts of the highlands region are listed under the uh, UNESCO World Heritage. And at the moment, since the Jokowi administration gone ahead to, to connect the, the road to the highlands, there has not been any, some studies or research whether this will also cut through some of those um, world list, heritage listed areas or even some of the sacred places that, uh, that are indigenous people doesn't want any of those roads cut through, whether it's through their village and so there were, there's already been resistance to that from day one, but there wasn't any tender process to really consult and then a company to come in and um, look at the, and, and just to study the area and making sure every party are happy to that um, construction work. Yeah, it just kind of like goes ahead, and so that has left with conflict that has erupted in December, and up until now, the, the construction has been put on hold, basically. I'd imagine there's been no environmental effects statement, what we would call an environmental effects statement. Is it an area of high rainfall where this road could cause great problems and that might even get, not get finished at all? Oh, yes, it is an area of high rainfall and very dense city in terms of the forest, the jungle, as well as rivers. Like, it requires... Big, um, yeah, so many rivers that, um, and creeks that this road will um, have to cut through. And so at the moment, it's only the remaining kilometers has been confirmed. It's only 25 kilometers that this road will finish, and it is a 4,000-kilometer highway. And But just because of this particular area in Duga, the fear as well is that it's very close to their current Timika mining, which is owned by the Freeport McMoran, and they are now doing this underground mining and reserve. And what they're doing is they're not doing this open pit, but they are going underground. And at the moment, because no one really knows what's happening down there, and it's they're going right under kilometers that's under the ground, but it is going towards these places in Duga and Wamena and all of those highlands region. And so this is one of the very scary parts is that this, this mining is going underground and really going into these places that it shouldn't be. And so that is why also the resistance and from the local indigenous people towards this Trans-Papua Highway, because once that Trans-Papua Highway connects Duga to Timika, then it will be a matter of time to announce they will explore it to this very other um, untouched area, which is Nduga is very much the unique area. So the chiefs and 
elders from the village are saying no to any form of development because of the Freeport McMoran mining. If one looks on the map, it is going underground and very much um, to other uh, neighbouring districts. So what you're saying, is this a, an extension of the existing mine or is it a different mine altogether? It's an extension of the existing mine. A lot of money must be being put into this. In 2013, there was a strike by the, 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 the workers for an increased wage. And at least for three months, the workers uh, went on the strike and the report that came out from the director of the Freeport McMoran that just in one hour, it is costing the Freeport mine at least $10 million. And imagine in a day how much the revenue they're making out of that. And so that gives us a sense that the money, um, billions of dollars pretty much uh, taken out for, through this mine. And it was just three or four days ago this week, basically, that in the index of the gold and copper, if, I, it's, if I'm not correct, recall this from one of the US the mining charts it states that the Freeport McMoran still sits as the number one largest production of gold in the world and and it still holds that record of large largest production what has that mine meant for the people of the area over those years it meant that the heart of the motherette has been dug out. That is for many of the elders, and that is what they always refer to. That mine, is, it symbolizes the rape, the deforestation, but at the same time, the lung, the heartbeat of the, pop, the island has been shed. And, yeah, taken, and everything that is within, resources that are within that mine. And so we shared that in terms of this mine is one of the big tumbling blocks for the people of Papua, especially when, you know, trying to find a better solution to this. Then it is this mine, mining companies, that this also needs to be part of the whole of discussion. Like what is now happening in, in West Papua in the recent months, especially in August coming up, it's about the um, anti-discrimination and um, right to self-determination, but at the end of the day, the big multinational companies are sitting right there and making millions of dollars every day and are happy that their business is going on as usual because of um, it doesn't affect them economically, whereas the Papuans' um, human rights are being crumbled and the right to their the, self-determination is being silenced by the world leaders, regional world leaders. And so we're seeing here that this is one of the big problems in West Papua today. Am I right in saying that this mine used to be a mountain and now it's a hole? Absolutely. It, ha it was one of the top highest mountains. And one thing that um, is also affecting is that you could see the, the glaciers once thick sitting on the mountain top are now becoming just a spread of sheets um, sitting there and it is impacting the climate, the weather pattern in Papua and increasing temperatures and that has been actually researched and looked into 
how this mining was once a mountain, now it's become a big hole, which can be seen through the satellite, and that is affecting the region. And we're seeing now in Indonesia with the bushfire spreading across Riau here in Australia, and, and this summer it will also affect the climate patterns, the weather patterns in this region. And this also affects because of this massive production of resources coming out and deforestation in in West Papua, and as well as Papua New Guinea, basically, I'm saying as well, um, the, the island of New Guinea. I began by asking you how difficult it is to get information out of West Papua. What do you know about recent arrests? The recent arrests of um, the peaceful protesters and organisers of the non-violence actions around West Papua and parts of Indonesia, at least... Um, We've already heard numbers have come out that over 90 people have been arrested and detained and remained in custody. The leaders of the peaceful actions are placed in isolation, especially one of the key organizers in Jakarta, Surya Anta. He's an Indonesian who a pro-democracy activist and very progressive, and, yeah, they stayed security forces arrested him last week and detained him and now put him in isolation with no legal representatives. In West Papua alone, last week, two leaders of the movement, Buktata Buni and Tiv Itlai, was also arbitrarily detained and now placed in isolation. One of the sister, Manda Bayan, is her surname. She also was arrested upon her arrival in Manokwari, one of the towns in the north coast of West Papua, and local security arrested her. They found small flags in her suitcase, and so her crime is for possessing those small flags. And so she's been placed in the police station and most likely will be charged with treason. And sadly as well, over the last couple of days we're hearing a uh, number of deaths increase and over 10 from this um, the, the, the uprising in, around West Papua. But that doesn't stop the Papuans from coming out to the streets. Yesterday, two places around West Papua, one in the highlands in Yahukimo, several thousand came out and continued to express their right to self-determination and exercising their freedom of assembly. And as well as on the island of Yapen near Biak, this is off the mainland, there were also a rally took place and three of the organizers were arrested and still now, as I'm speaking, are still in custody. And arrests like these only make the people more determined to call for the United Nations to take a role. Absolutely. And that is a call on the ground at the moment. All throughout West Papua, people are calling this. And even this is also echoed through the local provincial governors, two of the provincial governors, and as well as the, the representatives of the provincial government, are calling now for Jakarta that the state security response is not the solution to this whole um, situation. And if that is what the state is, do, um, is proposing or enforcing, then 
it's no other way but to find a to have a UN visit of the human rights atrocities, but also that it shows that the state, the central government, is not placing the trust in the hands of the provincial government to address the situation, to hear the voice of the people, and to find a, a peaceful means to address the frustration and then to deal with this in a, in a peaceful manner. But since that the, the Minister for Political Security and Legal Affairs, Wiranto, has made the call and placed the chief of police as well as the chief of army to have uh, their office indefinitely in Papua and have already on record, it's a 6,000 security forces already on the ground to wage peace. It's a rhetoric in itself <laughs> and to see numbers of people have already been arrested and security presence on the street, photos have emerged in the last 24 hours showing fully armed police and military walking on the streets. It kind of gives that sense of intimidation and psychologically affects many of the Papuans and everyone gets scared. So in a way, it's an undeclared martial law in Papua right now. Just finally, Ronnie, there is a fact that there is a, a great number of Indonesians now living in West Papua, but a lot of them actually support the Papuan people in their struggle. Absolutely. Many that came through the transmigration program in the um, 70s and 80s and have lived over these years have came to understood. And many, the, those who are now in the 60s and above, are sympathetic towards the, the situation and how the Papuans have been treated by state policies and as well as the implementations of those policies through the special autonomy, whereby there's no trigger of that support to the people on the ground and into the villages, let alone the health services and education services on the, for the Papuans. And as we're moving into the, those, those who are in their mid-20s to mid-40s or mid-30s, they are the ones that are kind of like educated ones and those who are, those transmigrants that understand and so also coming out to echo the principles of democracy and uh, freedom of expression and the, the integrity and dignity of the people of West Papua. And so this has come out clearly in those um, the demonstrations. And so one of the quick moves that the authorities have responded to the uprising, which has shown a lot of the transmigrants also came out, Indonesians, and came out to support and also in, in solidarity. And what we're seeing is that these militia groups, and these are the radical Islamic groups that are came as well, part of the march, in, especially in Jayapura, uh, on the 28th and 29th of August, which chaos erupted with looting and rioting on the streets and burning down of um, government buildings. And that creates a response from the state security forces, the police and military, to crack down on the peaceful activists. So the events that unfold after 29 is that many of the 
students, organizers, are being targeted by these militia groups. And the attacks are carried out in in early hours, like 4 a.m. in the morning. And so in Jayapura, on the morning of the 30th to the 31st of August, there was this attack into the student dormitories, which left one student, university student, died from the stabbing and uh, a bullet went through his um, right chest. And then several dozens uh, were critically injured, stabbed, and they were just lucky to get away. Uh, When police responded quickly as well at that time, there was another call for police. And so there is this conflict or a new setting that uh, are happening right now as well is the, the militia on rampage and attacking and going and trying to look for the activists. And so this is a new dynamics that has just happened over the last course of a week or two now. Thank you. And that's Ronnie Karini with Papuan activists now living in Australia. Come to a very special evening of music, dance and dinner. Joy of Freedom, Pacific Voices Sing Out for West Papua. Celebrate the launch of the CD Joy of Freedom on Saturday the 21st of September from 6pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Entry is $15 and includes dinner. Performers include the Chendrawasi Dancers, Pacifica Victoria Choir, Corianne, the Black Sisters, Black Orchid String Band, Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat, and Tatame and the Neighbours, because music is our weapon. More information at Facebook event Joy of Freedom, a 3CR supporter. During 2018 and 2019, Australian students have been and continue to be organising and participating in school strikes demanding climate action. Up to 150,000 in all, and this is leading up to the global school protests this Friday, the 20th of September, which in some countries will continue for a whole week. And as here in Australia... Old Australians will join the young climate activists on the streets. But it's not a new phenomenon. Australia has a long history of students walking out of the classroom to demand change be made. And there have been many issues which have led to the actions of students, issues both within the school boundaries and beyond. Historian, activist, broadcaster, writer, he has many hats, Ian McIntyre, has completed a list encompassing eight decades of Australian school strikes and direct actions, and he admits that they're not all there. Ian, you've researched many areas of social history in Australia. Why school children walking out to demand change? For this piece, there, there was a few reasons. One, I guess it's something I've been interested in for some time, in part because of my own school experiences. There was a school strike at my school uh, in Western Australia in the mid-80s. Kind of was a bit of a silly school strike (laughs) in some ways, but it came in the context of... um, So the school I was attending had been set up in the 70s, and at that time, you know, there'd been a major movement away from uniforms in in the late 70s. So the school didn't have a uniform, and then uh, it decided in the 80s to introduce one, and I guess there was... 
you know, a certain level of displeasure from the kids at the school around that. And then the way it kind of burst into a strike was through a rumour that went round that they were going to make us wear purple flares. Purple flares in, in the mid-80s at the kind of school I was going to where, where a lot of kids kind of, I guess, wore tight black jeans or, or whatever, you know, it was sort of this ah, abomination that they would make us wear purple flares. So I think, you know, the, the, the underlying issue at school was, was that these uniforms were coming in and nobody was all that happy about it. And then the catalyst for kind of kids walking out or actually rather refusing to come in from lunch was from this school flares thing. I guess that was one of my first experiences of, of that kind of collective, I suppose, troublemaking. Because certainly at the school I was going to, there was a lot of kind of, uh, I guess, more kind of individual, you know, resistance to the boredom of schools and, and, and some of the rules around schools and some of the more kind of ridiculous things kids had to go through. But it tended to be, you know, individual kids kind of mucking up or, or, or the class sort of creating problems for the teacher or whatever and that that was a bit of a dead end it didn't really necessarily change anything now as it is the school got the uniform thing through anyway but I suppose as the years went by and I heard from other friends about school strikes they'd been part of or often you know more kind of I suppose organized political school strikes and walkouts and stuff it just became something that I became more and more interested in because generally school kids aren't seen as having much agency they're not seen as having much of a of a say or a role in society and here's uh, I guess these are a kind of concrete examples of where either according to the conditions that they're suffering analogous I guess to workplace conditions or whatever that kids have sort of stood up for themselves or where, yeah, kids have sort of said, well, we may not be adults, we may not have the vote or whatever, but we should have a say in the direction of society. So I guess that was the overall kind of ongoing interest. And then I guess the more um, specific thing is, of course, that we've had this series of climate strikes and we've got another one coming up this Friday. And so, yeah, I just thought it would be interesting to pull together bits and pieces of research, I guess to demonstrate to people that school strikes, there's been a very long history of them in Australia, and I suppose maybe hopefully to get some of the climate strikers to think about the fact that you can apply these tactics not just to a broad political issue, like trying to stop you know, catastrophic climate change, but you could also, and it's probably pretty obvious to them anyway, but you, you could also um, apply this more to the kind of day-to-day -day school life. You've been looking back over 80 years. How do you bring all that together? Where do you find the information? I had a certain amount of notes that I pulled together from uh, other research projects over the years. For instance, when I was doing... Uh, Tomorrow is Today, which is a book about sort of Australia in, the, in sort of music and culture and society in what I dubbed the psychedelic era, but sort of 65 to, um, to 1970 or 66 to 1970. During the process of that, like I kept coming across in news reports and stuff, you know, various school strikes. So I had some notes from projects like that and from the How to Make Trouble and Influence people book which I wrote about which is more sort of Australian history of pranks protests and mischief making so lots of school stuff had come up with that and then more recently for the purposes of 
seeing what else uh, is out there, um, I kind of use two main sources, and these are really great sources in general, uh, and a lot of people, again, be aware of them, but I'll mention them anyway. Green Left Weekly's um, archives, you can sort of search through those, and also uh, the National Library of Australia's Trove Newspapers archives. Um, in particular, they've got the Communist or the old Communist Party of Australia's Tribune magazine. So I'd also done some interviews years back with various activists where people kind of mentioned their school organising experiences and in particular I interviewed Gavin Murray who's since deceased who was involved with the Victorian Secondary Students um, Union who had some quite big strikes in the early 70s. Well you've talked about the purple flares <laughs> your experience but there's a whole range of issues aren't there and in different schools you some schools you might think where students would walk out including at school like university high school yeah so look i mean i guess a lot of the strikes that are in the chronology and in the article which i suppose are more about school conditions didn't tend to be those select entry and private schools however all schools in the, uh, so I guess in terms of conditions there, I mean like overcrowding, um, lack of sanitation, uh, and that sort of thing. Children uh, were subject to corporal punishment and sort of harsh uniform rules and, and other rules uh, that were kind of seen as repressive or oppressive right across the scale you know, whether they're private, public, select entry or, or not. So I guess it's not so surprising that regardless, I suppose, of the kind of class background or whether students were seen as kind of high achievers or whatever, that, that we would see the same kinds of resistance popping up. So, I mean, with University High, they had a sort of a couple of waves of things in the late 60s and early 70s, and I guess to some degree this was the kind of heyday of secondary school activism uh, and you know being in part I suppose part of that more generalized kind of youth revolt of the, of the uh, late 60s and early 70s so there was kind of a trend in the late 60s and early 70s for groups uh, different school-based groups to produce their own underground newspapers or, or, you know, Ronio pamphlets or whatever. And so there was a crackdown at University High around that. Uh, but not just there, there was sort of 20... In 68, there were kind of more than 20 radical high school newspapers. And often these were... In a lot of cases, they were kind of aligned with different Trotskyist or Maoist or anarchist groups that, you know, the kids were involved with. In some cases, they came out of, the, you know, the schools themselves. And they, these newspapers tended to cover a mix of, I guess, conscription being the major issue, particularly since, um, you know, lots of teenage uh, young men were looking at, you know, in a year or two facing conscription, uh, if not sooner. But they also often looked at, you know, as I say, corporal punishment and uniforms and that sort of thing. And I suppose also around this time, particularly around kind of self-expression and that sort of thing, things like hair lengths uh, for boys and having sideburns, <laughs> things as basic as that kind of became often catalysts for strikes and for kind of other forms of action. Girls being and young women being able to wear um, pants 
people being allowed to wear, you know, political badges, these sort of, I guess, expression things uh, with one's clothing and kind of appearance became rural flashpoints with the schools. So University High experienced some of that and then later on kind of was one of the schools that the sort of some big strikes in 1972 kind of grew out of. And it's not just the local, was it? It's, and it still is. It's the international. Yeah, so I mean, I guess if we look, for instance, at the 1970, uh, late 60s, 1970s, yes, uh, in the US there are also uh, lots of um, high school groups tackling issues around, you know, that, that kind of twin issues of, or not twin, but multiple issues of things like Vietnam, women's liberation and gender discrimination, and then, yeah, kind of just a day-to-day kind of grind of school and feeling repressed and having no say in anything at school. And there was one instance where it wasn't just a local issue. It was the first national school strike in 1972. How did that come about? Yes, my impression is sort of things started out in Victoria where the Victorian Secondary Students' Union had some kind of statewide strikes or there was a sort of strike that came out of University High and then that snowballed into statewide strikes and then there was the sort of decision to kind of take it national and this was I guess the peak of school student uh, activism at that time so I think uh, the impression I get is you know the kind of nascent resistance network you know as part of uh, I guess I can't remember what the wider socialist group they were called at the time, but later on became Democratic Socialist Party and the Socialist Alliance. So their resistance group played a big role. Um, Young Communist Party of Australia activists played a role. Uh, And then I guess the, the sort of university students and so forth, you know, their networks through the Australian Union of Students, as well as some Young Labor Party organisations and and so forth. So there was this kind of proposal came out of, I think, Victoria. I haven't done enough research to to sort of say that definitively, but, yeah, it came out and sort of pushed for this national strike. And, yeah, it ended up... Well, it's a bit hard to say exact numbers for a couple of reasons. I mean, newspapers tend... uh, The sort of mainstream media tends to underestimate these things and the activist media perhaps tends to exaggerate these things. But also, you know, in general, the full kind of variety of these school strikes often either isn't covered in the media at all, uh, you know, and I have to say in in doing this chronology, I mean, I, I would imagine that there's dozens if not hundreds of school strikes I would have missed out on. I mean, the one that happened at my school certainly wasn't documented anywhere. But also, this was such a big strike in 1972 that there were a lot of... Um, not everybody kind of was able to head into the city to join the kind of rallies that happened in the centre of each city around Australia or each major city and small towns. A lot of people uh, apparently just had, you know, walkouts in their school or just didn't go to school that day or whatever. So, so the exact sort of level... Can't really be known, but it certainly seems that from the various kind of mixing together the various alternative and mainstream media coverage that, you know, it was certainly in the tens of thousands. So in Canberra, you had strikers rallying outside Parliament House. Uh, in Perth, they gathered at the Supreme Court Gardens. Um, 
in Melbourne they march from Treasury Gardens to the City Square, in Brisbane from the Botanic Gardens to Roma Street Forum. Full tyres were burnt during a rally of thousands in Hyde Park, Sydney. Uh, but again, then we have the more localised sort of stuff. So, you know, things that have come up are um, at Kings Meadow High School in Launceston. Students wanted a school gym, so, you know, they had a rally of 200 people there. And then they marched uh, to Prospect High School, picked up a few hundred more people, and then marched to the city's third high school before they kind of wound up at Launceston Town Hall. And then at Penshurst Girls High School in Sydney, 400 people protested outside the school itself. And at Nowra, there was 500 in a, in a sit-in and so forth. Yeah, that was a pretty major event. And of course, at different times, students have campaigned against the closure of their individual schools. But when you come back to the 90s with Kennett closing schools willy-nilly, that brought students out to the streets. Yeah, and I guess the thing is with, I mean, often students have kind of carried out these kind of strikes and other actions as students or on their own or, you know, with the hostility of parents and, and you know, school authorities and, and other kind of players. But in the case of the 90s, certainly it wasn't just students, it was communities, it was parents, uh, and it was the unions and, you know, in some cases it was also sort of principals and so forth, not always, but sometimes um, supporting action. So, yeah, I mean, you know, 92, for those of us who are old enough to remember, uh, was, was a pretty bad year in terms of the Kennett Liberal National State Government introducing an austerity budget uh, and just slashing funding for, for public services across the board and they shut down dozens of schools uh, which eventually lost, uh, led to the loss of hundreds of schools, you know, which is obviously now with school overcrowding and, and there not being enough high schools in a number of areas and so forth, you know, we're still suffering from this. Certainly students um, took action, like there was a group from Coburg North High School who held a vigil outside State Parliament for 30 days because uh, they were losing their school. Then there had to be a long campaign to get a new high school in Coburg <laughs> and expanded high school in more recent years. Um, and I guess the kind of high point of this and something that was certainly covered very heavily on 3CR and supported by 3CR at the time was that students, parents and supporters occupied five schools to prevent them from being vandalised and, and sold off. Three of those occupations led to the schools being saved to some degree. And I guess in terms of students, um, the two occupations uh, where they really played a role was at Richmond Senior High School and Northland Senior High School because basically communities, unemployed teachers and volunteers kind of stepped in to keep those schools open. They just refused to close, but they couldn't have stayed open if the students hadn't have agreed to keep attending the schools and the kids were very involved in both of those campaigns. And, uh, even though the students were at threat of, you know, having to repeat a year, it wasn't clear that the education department would, you know, accept that they'd spent a year at school. You're listening to Ian McIntyre talking about a history of school strikes and actions over the past 80 years. Just wondering what sort of support that they did get. You just mentioned them with the, with the schools that there were parents and teachers and maybe some principals, but 
Overall, did you find much teacher support for what the kids were doing? Just generally? generally. Oh, generally, look, it varied a lot. You know, in some cases, uh, so, so one of the main sort of points of contention, I guess, in the early 70s was around the moratorium marches. So these were, you know, as, again, for those... Uh, well, I'm not old enough to remember them because I was only born around that time. But um, for those unfamiliar with the moratorium marches, these were kind of the peak of anti-Vietnam activity. So these were kind of mass marches of hundreds of thousands of people around Australia. Amongst the, those, there were tens of thousands of students involved. And in the run-up to the moratorium marches, particularly in Sydney, there was kind of a big dispute over whether um, students could wear moratorium badges to school. So these badges, you know, they basically had the moratorium symbol and in some cases they said things like, stop work to stop the war. Yeah, so at certain high schools, you know, it became, teachers came out in support of the students. So a number of school students were either suspended for wearing the badges or given the cane, you know, hit with a cane, or expelled from school. And some students, you know, missed out, in other cases, missed out on scholarships for, for teaching colleges and that sort of thing. So just wearing these badges that basically showed opposition to the war had certainly put you in the firing line so far as, as the authorities in, within the schools were concerned. However, there were a number of teachers who joined protests saying that students shouldn't be suspended some teachers wore moratorium badges and one woman was sacked from a Catholic school in New South Wales for doing that. Other teachers were suspended for wearing those. The school that kind of got the most media kind of coverage was Ibrox High School in New South Wales where there are a number of kind of students held a number of rallies at the school. Um, the school principal ordered that the librarians had to remove anything to do with current affairs and the Vietnam War from the school library. So the teachers had some protest meetings about that. But amongst the staff, you know, there was quite bitter division, which I guess kind of reflected those bitter divisions in Australia at that time around the war, because one of the teachers was extremely pro-war and, you know, he injured another teacher by slamming a school gate in his face. And this particular pro-war teacher, uh, there's photos in some of the old newspapers of him trying to, you know, get uh, the activists to come down to support the students around this stuff, you know, trying to punch on with them and so forth. So <laughs> varied a lot. I mean, in some cases you've had um, students coming out on strike in order to support teacher strikes, you know, and often because... They see that if there's more resources put into education, things are going to be better for students, and if their teachers are better paid, you know, that's going to be better for students and so forth too. So it has, has varied quite a lot. I mean, for the most part, the kind of school set up, particularly in the years prior to the 70s, was pretty oppressive and pretty hard on students, so there wasn't necessarily a lot of support from the teachers then but it certainly seems from the 60s onwards and the the early 70s onwards that as part of that kind of generational change you know teachers start to support students more was there one particular remarkable one that stuck with you yeah look i, I mean i was wasn't involved with this because i think i was sorry i'll start again yeah look the book not bombs uh sorry start again uh, the Books Not Bombs strikes um, of the early 2000s against the um, 
I guess the second round of bombing of Iraq and then and then the invasion um, brought up some quite interesting things. On the day Iraq was bombed, um, a kind of message went out saying, "When the bombs drop, school stops." And uh, there were quite a few uh, schools where, yes, yeah, students walked off to join, you know, the huge rallies that people would kind of recall of that time. And I remember going to those rallies and yet there being very kind of huge numbers of students. And, you know, it was interesting to read how some students, some schools were tempted to lock in students. So, that, so they locked up at, at the time that people were meant to leave school and walk out. And so she had students sort of escaping via school windows and so forth. On a more individual level, there was quite an interesting case of a young woman in 1969. She was a member of a group called Students in Descent, and she got suspended from Anala State High School because basically some students came to her, um, this being, I guess, the era of the miniskirt, came to her and said, you know, I'm being told by teachers I can't wear this particular miniskirt. This young woman had sort of done a bit of research about the school rules because, of course, back then there wasn't really any transparency, and often there still isn't, but particularly at that time, there wasn't really any transparency about what the school rules were. So often students didn't really know for sure whether they were actually in breach of them. So uh, this young woman knew enough to tell this other student, no, you, you, know, you can wear your skirt as long or as short as you like. So because of that, she got suspended from the school. Now, she responded by kind of coming down and handing out leaflets outside the school. But, of course, this was the uh, Bielke era, and, I mean, whether it was under the Nationals or under the ALP, conditions had often been very repressive in Queensland for activists. And so the um, special branch, the political police, were, were coming down and basically taking her away from school quite regularly. <laughs> and in the end, she got banned from attending any school in the state, so she wasn't able to um, complete, you know, her sort of schooling. Then it was interesting, I guess, again, because I suppose of, of the general repressiveness and, you know, more broad resistance to the BLK premiership, uh, the Queensland Trade and Labor Council passed a motion supporting her and, and various groups held rallies and so forth and then she uh, was part of a subsequent protest outside the education department where the cops came and dragged away more than 100 students and teachers who were supporting her. She kept trying to get into the building and kept getting dragged out but while that was happening a small group snuck into the building and left a list of demands on the department director's desk. Now, where the story, uh, and I'm hoping to interview this person at some point, but I haven't been able to track them down yet, so that's why I'm not mentioning their name, because they may not feel, <laughs> they may not want uh, this all dragged up again, or they may be very proud of it, I don't know. But I think they should be, because sort of, you know, she just kept pushing. So following her um, continued expulsion, she um, chained herself to the state government's treasury building for 10 hours before police removed her. And I guess, you know, that action had its own ties back to, to the actions of, of the suffragettes. But also, I suppose, came, you know, being in 69 was the same year that um, Melbourne feminist Zelda Soprano was also chaining herself to the Treasury building here in Victoria around equal pay. So, you know, there was part of the zeitgeist thing, I guess. But I thought that, that was pretty amazing for, for somebody who was 17 or 18 keep uh, pushing through all, all, that, all that crap and keep standing up for her rights. Yeah, well, you haven't named anyone really in all of your 
reports, but I'd imagine that some of those students must have gone on to bigger and better things. Oh, definitely. I have a friend who's been doing a series of oral history interviews recently with um, older activists, and, and he's finding that uh, high school activism was a, was a really recurring theme. That that's where people got their start, and certainly in my research and you know the interviews I've done over the years, it's often often where people first took part in activism, but of course often where people first began to question the nature of society and uh, how democratic our society is and how how um, just our society really is because of their experiences in school. And something this article's uh, available via the. Commons Library, which can be found at commonslibrary.org, and we're certainly asking for people. Uh, we know that I've only really touched tip of the iceberg here. As I say, you know, there's so many things that were never kind of reported in the press and so forth. So we're really asking, uh, and I'd ask this from the listeners too, if you can, you know, send us your stories and so forth. This will be a kind of continuing. We hope to grow this chronology, so we'd love to hear people's stories and experiences and the things um, that I've missed. As always, though, it wouldn't have mattered what decade it was, the powers that be condemned the students for taking action. Is that correct? Yes, of course. I mean, in the 70s, we had Premier Bolte coming out and sort of ordering students back to school rather than going to the moratoriums. And then in the 2000s, we had the New South Wales ALP Premier and later Foreign Minister Bob Carr trying and failing to... um, ban the books not bombs strikes uh, against the Iraq war he wasn't really able to to find a way to kind of force students uh, not to walk out of school but uh, unfortunately particularly in, in New South Wales the police kind of arrested and assaulted students during those protests so for the most part certainly politicians have always tried to say uh, and you know certainly later on Kevin Rudd as well kind of condemned student actions and of course we've seen it more recently with the various mining ministers and and the prime minister and so forth telling kids uh, that you know to sort of butt out of these issues and the shock jocks and the media yes and of course these are the exact people that even though they absolutely dominate the airwaves and often dominate the official kind of conversations around these issues as soon as anyone kind of points out that they've been racist or even po- you know, and points out where they've just flat out got their facts wrong, these are the first people who always squeal about free speech, yet the idea of um, students taking free speech is, is seen as anathema or illogical or bizarre, even though, as I say, there's this long history, and I very much doubt that without students standing up for their rights both formally in terms of taking strikes and informally in terms of challenging school rules and so forth on a uh, a school-by-school level, I I think if those things hadn't have happened, like most oppressive things, you know, we'd still have students getting hit with canes and we'd still uh, have all these ridiculous rules that, that students had to put up with and to some degree have to still put up with. So, you know, it's not like it's all been won. But certainly schooling, gender segregation and the use of corporal punishment against students uh, has for the most part been removed and I don't think that would have happened without student action. So it's, it's not illogical and it's, it's, it's certainly not bizarre and new. 
Well, just finally, Ian, if people do have a story to add to your collection for student activities, how do they go about it? Yeah, so they can visit commonslibrary.org and there's a contact address there and they can read the full article there as well. And also the Commons sort of in general is a uh, repository of lessons, skills and case studies from Australian labour, social and community movements. So if people are in generally interested in, in learning uh, how to do activism, how to be more effective in their campaigning and to see what others have done in the past, including student strikes and so forth, then commonslibrary.org is, you know, basically an excellent place to start. And it has, it has a focus very much on kind of Australian examples and, and Australian knowledge, specifically trying to fill a gap, I guess, in terms of Australian knowledge around this sort of stuff and, and sharing the lessons of the past with a particular Australian focus because our context is obviously different to the US or Tunisia or, or elsewhere. Not that we can't learn from them, but it's important for us to um, also sort of look at things in our own context and our own history. Thanks, Ian. No worries. And that, of course, was Ian McIntyre. And if you'd like to add your voice to the protest on Friday... Meetings are happening at the Treasury Gardens at 2 o'clock and the rally goes until 4 o'clock. So that's Friday, 2 o'clock at the Treasury Gardens in the city, going until 4 o'clock. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, but let's go out with some Ruby Hunter. Bye for now.